0: Hello everyone and welcome back. It is good to see you all. I hope you're having a fine week. Hello, 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 hello. Oh boy, it feels like I'm coming in with a weird energy today, but no, I think I've got good, solid energy. Yesterday was a little wild, I admit it. It's a little wacky if you want to know what's going on in our wednesday campaign do use the lore command uh and that will take you over to our uh, our little lore message that'll just sort of get you caught up get you abreast of the situation over there on wednesdays because we're having a ton of fun um i'm seeing hogwarts hippie and van gwendog who else is up in the mix mortal hello everybody um hey mortal that is quite all right uh i think you know of anything of, of any of the many different kinds of uh, entertainment that you can find on live streaming platforms like this one mine is some of the friendliest to lurking uh and as such i would be a fool not to be friendly to lurks myself so if you're here to lurk that is quite all right <laughs> also it, i said it out loud and i didn't like how it sounded you're not a lurk you're just a person who's listening that happens to be lurking at the time that doesn't make you a lurk a lurk sounds like uh i don't know it sounds it sounds pejorative it sounds very pejorative um oh dang oh dang Hoggle hippie says i'm officially back just needed a, a long break, but you get what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely, Hogwarts Hippie. I didn't know you were, like, back back. So, hey, hey, Hogwarts Hippie, hello. Um, I was asking earlier, are y'all watching Stranger Things right now? Um, Or, as I have just endlessly entertained myself for the past few days, weird stuff. <laughs> I, I really like, uh, when I'm talking to Cass about what we're going to be watching that day, like, hey, do you want to watch, uh... <laughs> Uh, Peaky Blinders has become Porky Bobbers. Um, and uh, Stranger Things has become Weird Stuff. Hey, cats, you want to go watch Weird Stuff? We're on episode three of Weird Stuff. And uh, again, <laughs> it makes me laugh more than it should. Um, but I was asking if y'all are watching it. And uh, Hogwarts Hippie says, I'll probably watch it when it's no longer popular. And uh, yeah, the <laughs> it is definitely... Um, that was my pattern for a long time. I've I've managed to catch up with some things, some things, certainly not everything. Um, you know, there's the occasional movie I really want to see in theaters. Um, I would say I'm more caught up on all of the, like, Marvel stuff than I would be otherwise. I'm not fully caught up, but I'm much more caught up because um, that's one of the ways I sort of, like, connect with my brothers. We, we both tend to watch those movies uh, kind of roundabout when they come out, so... But other than that, no, I'm I'm very much in your camp, you know, I'll I'll catch up with it later, if I ever do, um, and so I find stuff way after the fact, like, uh, The Last of Us, fantastic storyline, good grief, one of my favorite stories in any media, um, uh, Harry Potter, of course, I read that, I didn't read that until I was 20 for the first time, yeah, yeah, I catch up with stuff late, but I am watching Stranger Things right now, um, Cass and I are watching it. I think I think we just cleared episode three. I think, um, which what is what Van is saying. Van says I didn't like the first two episodes much. Lots of playing catch up, but after episode three, it really took off, and I was on board. And yeah, I agree with you there. That's one of the tough things about like media that I end up really enjoying is that it takes a while to like set the groundwork. But while it's doing that, I admit I have low patience for the groundwork itself. But once it's set. And there's a chance to build off of it and continue that, like uh, you know, continue to to catch up with themes that were properly established, as opposed to just sort of like rush past so you could get into the action. I really, really uh, tend to enjoy those the most, and so it's tough. It's a t- it's tough to be a, a consumer of media right now. I mean, obviously there's so many tougher things, but this is a particularly tough time to be a consumer of media, I guess I would say, um, just because you know there's there's so much to watch and you know you know if episode 1 even episode 2 if you're two episodes in and it hasn't like hooked you there's this huge impulse to just like i could be watching eight other things right now but sometimes those two episodes three episodes of payoff they really really help to improve things later on cuz you're actually invested in stuff so it's 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 tough this is a tough time to be a, uh, a consumer of media, at least in that regard. Mortal says, I don't watch Stranger Things. I got scared of it when it first came out. Yeah, It's it's definitely, you know, it presents itself as this, like, kids on bikes, uh, you know, continuing in the tradition of, like, the Goonies. But, no, it is fully horrifying. I think they, you know, early on, they sort of realized, like, okay, they, they shot for kind of middle of the road in terms of like how deeply scary they were going to get in season four. Now it is full on, like R rated horror, like (laughs) maybe a bit less blood than, than one might imagine from like a full on horror movie, but not by much. It is, it is definitely, (laughs) it is definitely a scary, scary show now. Yeah. Season one was definitely more tame. But over, over time, they've, they've, I think, kind of realized, like, eh, I think this is this is the direction that we're headed here. Anyway, folks, it's good to have you all here. Miss Messica, I love you. <laughs> it's good to see you all. Um, Fansaves Live says, I wouldn't say gory, but graphic. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, y'all, I hope you've had a good week. Um, I want to say thank you very much to Hogwarts Hippie and Van Saves Lives. I'm seeing a couple of Prime subscriptions. So, if y'all are wondering about that, I believe you can use the Prime command. Hey, I did something right. I'm like a real streamer boy. Hey. <laughs> Everybody, uh, Hogwarts Hippie is wondering how many chapters are in Book 3? It's a very interesting question and a good segue. I won't call too much attention to it. An excellent segue into our next topic of discussion. Book three of The Hunger Games. How stoked are y'all? Because I'm like, up here with Harry Potter. I had been like reading it, uh, maybe a book or two ahead of the live stream um, with Cass with... Uh, with Percy Jackson. I remembered enough, and then the parts I didn't remember, um, you know, it wasn't one of those series that I'd really, really fallen in love with. Um, And then with this one, I have been enjoying this so, so very much. And yet, I remembered a ton from book one. I remembered a decent bit of book two. I remember very little from book three, so I'm gonna be finding these things out, not necessarily as I read it, because I do have to prep these streams beforehand, so i'll just say i am uh i'm figuring this stuff out about 24 hours before you are and even then i'm just skimming for uh for dialogue so i can do my highlighting but uh some of these things are as surprising to me as they are to you and i hope you're excited (laughs) i hope you're very excited hogwarts hippie there are 27 chapters plus a very small epilogue 27 chapters once again nine chapters uh aka three streams per part three parts in the book part one is titled the ashes um, and part two is titled the assault and part three is titled the assassin are y'all excited i hope you're excited because i'm very excited um we have to talk a bit of review don't we let's go ahead and do that Before we get into it, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories. For anyone wondering what this is all about, please go ahead and use the links command at any time. That'll take you over to the Discord uh, and uh, all the other various places where you can find out about Sidecar Stories. But in essence, this is a channel where we share stories. Um, I like to read to you all. I like to tell stories to you. I like to tell stories with you like we do on Wednesdays. Uh, New stories like this, old stories like we uh, have done and will do again on Tuesdays. Um, Folks, a very exciting time starting in on a new book. In our last book, let's catch up a, a brief, but of course I'm covering two full books, so not terribly brief, recap on how we got to this point. If you want the full detail, obviously, you should go back and listen to the whole thing. You can find those wherever you get your podcasts under the label Flying Sidecar. Wherever you find your podcast, look up Flying Sidecar. You can find all the back episodes of that. Bella Muerte, hello. Hello and welcome. Uh, you are now a punk ruffian, an honorary punk ruffian. Uh, I want you to, to uh, slap on those fingerless gloves, get on your bikes and ride. <laughs> Um, in our first two books, Katniss Everdeen, a uh, a citizen of the country of Pan Am. Pan Am divided into 12 districts, used to be 13 before a big civil war, 12 districts plus the capital. Now, the capital maintains a real iron fist on the districts surrounding it. And every year, to commemorate, quotes, uh, <laughs> to commemorate the the loss that was started when District 13 rebelled against the capital they hold an event called the Hunger Games two tributes from each district selected at random, roughly um, go into an arena and must all fight one another to the death this is a system to keep the districts um, kind of in opposition to one another and to remind them the capital can do to them what they wish but over the course of these last two books, there have, some people, uh, there have been some people pushing back on that. In book one, Katniss Everdeen, uh, she ends up in the arena after volunteering to take her sister's place. She ends up there not with her kind of best and kind of only friend, Gail, but with Peeta, uh, a boy who had helped her to feed her family one fateful day, uh, and she never really interacted with much otherwise. She ends up in the arena with him. Now, over time, she starts to realize, uh, and as a method of uh, keeping the capital interested in them, because part of the game, after all, is not just winning in the arena, but winning the hearts and minds of those who are entertained by this whole thing, she and Pita and their mentor, Hamich put together this facade. This facade of... Peta and Katniss being star-crossed lovers. Peeta having noticed Katniss a long time ago and just pining away after her. Well, it turns out that that part was true. However, throughout all these games, they're sort of talking about this more and more. Um, and at the end, they manage to... Uh, all of the other tributes are dead and gone. At the very end, she... She suggests this little trick. Now, at some point during the games, the game makers had announced, hey, actually, if you're from the same district, two tributes can win instead of just one. And then at the very end, they rescind that, and it's just Katniss and Peeta, and they have to decide, okay, one of us has to kill the other person, right? No, Katniss decides. She's gonna give both of them poison berries, they're both gonna take them at once, and neither of them are going home, because heck with the games, heck with all of this, A little act of rebellion, which turns out to be a lot more than a little. As we enter book two, we realize just how much this has stirred up. An act of rebellion saying that the capital can't simply do whatever they want. We still have some control here. It has started to catch on. Throughout book two, we realize more and more districts are rebelling. And during this time, Katniss has been approached by Professor, Professor Snow. That's fully not his name, my friends. President Snow. Katniss has been approached by President Snow um, multiple times with the orders to either play up the silly girl in love doing anything she could for her, her star-crossed lover, as opposed to... Hey, I did this out of uh, in an act of rebellion. President Snow has insisted that Katniss has to pass this off as a silly thing rather than a rebellious thing, or... He's going to come after the people that she loves. And he has proven time and again how vicious he can be. How truly cruel he can be. As things get worse in the other district, there's, there are new peacekeepers in District 12. Rebellions are being squashed. The fence is electrified, so Katniss can't even sneak out and hunt anymore. And that's when the big, terrible thing happens. It's the quarter quell. This much was anticipated. Every 25 years, there's a sort of twist to the games. And this year, the twist is... We're not calling new tributes. We're calling old tributes. Every single person who's going into this game has won one in the past, and so from District Twelve, it's Katniss plus either Peta or Haymitch. Peta volunteers. As uh, as the two of them, Katniss and Peta, head back into the arena. They didn't really want allies. They knew, of course, that they were going to stick together with each other as long as they could, but they didn't really want allies. These other people, grown adults who had won past games, Finnick O'Dare from District 4, kind of a a little sleazy if terribly hot, um, uh, Joanna Mason, a, an abrasive, unfiltered individual from District 8, um, uh, and then other various uh, you know professional tributes from past games, etc., they didn't want allies, but it sounds like Haymitch had set some things up anyway. And of course, Hamish has kind of been playing the field this whole time. Haymitch promised both Peta and Katniss he was going to help them in their plan. But of course, their plans were at direct odds. Katniss's plan is to make sure Peta gets out alive, and Peta's plan is to make sure Katniss gets out alive. He agreed to help both of them. We're not sure what exactly Haymitch is up to, but as the as the games start to whittle down, as tributes drop, as Finnick and uh, uh, Joanna Mason and Beatty uh, end up being tributes that uh, that become allies with Katniss and Peeta. Um, a couple of powerful warriors, Beatty uh, from the Technology District, uh, a, a real strong mind. They get toward the end. There's been this motif of uh, these little shimmering force fields, and at the very end, Katniss completes a plan she didn't even know was in motion. The head game maker, Plutarch Heavensby, has actually been part of a res- resistance movement trying to bring down the Capitol's power for years. He made sure there was a special wire in the arena. Beetee's job was to get that wire connected with the lightning tree and then it was all their jobs to keep Katniss and also somewhat Peeta safe. In the end, Beatty was not able to succeed in his mission, but Katniss was able to just in time understand what the intent was with this wire plan. She shoots an arrow with this wire wrapped around it, the other end of the wire trailing down to the lightning tree. As lightning strikes the tree, it runs through the wire, it shocks the force field surrounding the arena, and she is picked up by, uh, barely conscious, she's picked up by a hovercraft. At the very end of the last book we find that this whole conspiracy was in place. Um, Haymitch was in on it, uh, to some degree Finnick, Joanna Mason, um, uh, Peeta was not aware and Katniss was not aware. And at the end of the book, we find out just how much this plan cost them. First, there is no more District 12. It's been bombed into oblivion by the capital, It's gone. Second, they weren't able to collect everyone. This hovercraft belongs to District 13 and they're headed there, because it turns out there really is a District 13 secretly still active, in hiding, but active. But they weren't able to get everyone. Unfortunately, Joanna Mason, had to be left in the arena, and so did PETA. And that's where we find ourselves. Katniss is separated from PETA, he has been captured by the capital, and we know just how cruel they can be. quick reminder to everyone, now that we're into our third book, we are going to be taking the vote for our next book over in the Discord. You can find that link just about everywhere. Head on over there, make sure to vote in the flying suggestion box. Uh, Go ahead and put your suggestions in for our next series. Chapter One. I stare down at my shoes, watching as a fine layer of ash settles on the worn leather This is where the bed I shared with my sister, Prim, stood. Over there was the kitchen table. The bricks of the chimney, which collapsed in a charred heap, provide a point of reference for the rest of the house. How else could I orient myself in this sea of grey? Almost nothing remains of District 12. A month ago, the Capitol's firebombs obliterated the poor coal miners' houses in the seams, the shops in the town, even the Justice Building. The only area that escaped incineration was the Victor's Village. I don't know why, exactly. Perhaps so anyone forced to come here on capital business would have somewhere decent to stay. The odd reporter, a committee assessing the condition of the coal mines, a squad of peacekeepers checking for returning refugees. But no one is returning except me. And that's only for a brief visit. The authorities in District 13 were against my coming back. They viewed it as a costly and pointless venture, given that at least a dozen invisible hovercraft are circling overhead for my protection, and there's no intelligence to be gained. I had to see it, though. So much so that I made it a condition of my cooperating with any of their plans. Finally, Plutarch Heavensby, the head game maker who had organized the rebels in the capital, threw up his hands.
1: Let her go! Better to waste a day than another month. Maybe a little tour of twelve is just what she needs to convince her we're on the same side.
0: The same side. A pain stabs my left temple and I press my hand against it. Right on the spot where Joanna Mason hit me with that coil of wire. The memories swirl as I try to sort out what's true and what is false. What series of events led me to be standing in the ruins of my city? This is hard because the effects of the concussion she gave me haven't completely subsided and my thoughts still have a tendency to jumble together. Also, the drugs that they use to control my pain and mood sometimes make me see things. I guess. I'm still not entirely convinced I was hallucinating the night the floor of my hospital room transformed into a carpet of writhing snakes. I use a technique one of the doctors suggested. I start with the simplest things I know to be true and work toward the more complicated. The list begins to roll in my head. My name is Katniss Everdeen. I am 17 years old. My home is District 12. I was in the Hunger Games. I escaped. The Capitol hates me. PETA was taken prisoner. He's thought to be dead. Most likely he is dead. It's probably best if he's dead. Katniss, should I come down? My best friend Gale's voice reaches me through the headset the rebels insisted I wear. He's up in a hovercraft, watching me carefully, ready to swoop in if anything goes amiss. I realize I'm crouched down now, elbows on my thighs, my head braced between my hands. I must look on the verge of some kind of mental breakdown. This won't do, not when they're finally weaning me off the medication. I straighten up and wave his offer away.
2: No, I'm fine.
0: To reinforce this, I begin to move away from my old house and toward the town. Gale asked to be dropped off in twelve with me, but he didn't force the issue when I refused his company. He understands I don't want anyone with me today. Not even him. Some walks you have to take alone. The summer's been scorching hot and dry as a bone. There's been next to no rain to disturb the piles of ash left by the attack. They shift here and there in reaction to my footsteps, no breeze to scatter them. I keep my eyes on what I remember as the road, because when I first landed in the meadow, I wasn't careful and I walked straight into a rock. Only it wasn't a rock, it was someone's skull. It rolled over and over and landed face up, and for a long time I couldn't stop looking at the teeth. "'wondering whose they were, thinking of how mine would probably look the same under similar circumstances. "'I stick to the road out of habit, but it's a bad choice because it's full of the remains of those who tried to flee. "'Some were incinerated entirely, but others, probably overcome with smoke, "'escaped the worst of the flames and now lie reeking in various states of decomposition. "'Carrion for scavengers, blanketed by flies.' I killed you, I think, as I pass a pile. And you. And you. Because I did. It was my arrow, aimed at that chink in the force field surrounding the arena that brought this firestorm of retribution, that sent the whole country of Pan Am into chaos. In my head, I hear President Snow's words, spoken the morning I was to begin the victory tour.
1: Getness, Everdeen the girl who was on fire you've provided a spark that left unattended may grow to an inferno that destroys Pan Am
0: it turns out he wasn't exaggerating or simply trying to scare me he was perhaps genuinely attempting to enlist my help but I had already set something into motion that I had no ability to control burning still burning i think numbly the fires at the coal mines belch black smoke in the distance there's no one left to care though more than 90 percent of the district's population is dead the remaining 800 or so are refugees in district 13 which as far as i'm concerned is the same thing as being homeless forever i know i shouldn't think that i know i should be grateful for the way that we've been welcomed sick wounded starving and empty-handed still I can never get around the fact that District 13 was instrumental in District 12's destruction. This doesn't absolve me of blame. There's plenty of blame to go around. But without them, I would not have been part of a larger plot to overthrow the capital, or had the wherewithal to do it. The citizens of District 12 had no organized resistance movement of their own. No say in any of this. They only had the misfortune to have me. Some survivors think it's good luck, though, to be free of District 12 at last, to have escaped the endless hunger and oppression, the perilous minds, the lash of our final head peacekeeper, Romulus Thread. To have a new home at all is seen as a wonder, since, up until a short time ago, we hadn't even known that District 13 existed. The credit for the survivor's escape has landed squarely on Gale's shoulders, although he's loath to accept it. As soon as the quarter quell was over, as soon as I had been lifted from the arena, the electricity in District 12 was cut. The televisions went black and the scene became so silent people could hear each other's heartbeats. No one did anything to protest or celebrate what had happened in the arena. Yet within fifteen minutes, the sky was filled with hover planes and the bombs were raining down. It was Gail who thought of the meadow one of the few places not filled with old wooden homes embedded with coal dust. He herded those he could in its direction, including my mother and Prim. He formed a team that pulled down the fence, now just a harmless chain-link barrier with the electricity off, and led the people into the woods. He took them to the only place he could think of, the lake my father had shown me as a child. And it was from there they watched the distant flames eat up everything they knew in the world. By dawn, the bombers were long gone. The fires dying, the final stragglers rounded up. My mother and Prim had set up a medical area for the injured and were attempting to treat them with whatever they could glean from the woods. Gale had two sets of bows and arrows, one hunting knife, one fishing net, and over 800 terrified people to feed. With the help of those who were able-bodied, they managed for three days and that's when the hovercraft unexpectedly arrived to evacuate them to District 13. But there were more than enough clean, white living compartments, plenty of clothing, and three meals a day. The compartments had the disadvantage of being underground. The clothing was identical and the food was relatively tasteless, but for the refugees of 12, these were minor considerations. They were safe. They were being cared for. They were alive and eagerly welcomed. This enthusiasm was interpreted as kindness. But a man named Dalton, the District 10 refugee who'd made it to 13 on foot a few years ago, leaked the real motive to me. They need you. Me. They need us all. While back, there was some sort of pox epidemic. Killed a bunch of them left a lot more of them infertile. New breeding stock, that's how they say us. Back in 10, he'd worked on one of the beef ranches, maintaining the genetic diversity of the herd with the implantation of long-frozen cow embryos. He's very likely right about 13, because there don't seem to be nearly enough kids around. But so what? We're not being kept in pens. We're trained for work. The children are being educated. Those over 14 have been given entry-level ranks in the military and are addressed respectfully as soldier. Every single refugee was granted automatic citizenship by the authorities of Thirteen. Still, I hate them. But of course, I hate almost everybody now. Myself, more than anyone. The surface beneath my feet hardens, and under the carpet of ash I feel the paving stones of the square. Around the perimeter is a shallow border of refuse where the shops stood. A heap of blackened rubble has replaced the Justice Building. I walked to the approximate site of the bakery Peter's family owned. Nothing much is left but the melted lump of the oven. Peter's parents, his two older brothers. None of them made it to 13. Fewer than a dozen of what passed for District 12's well-to-do escaped the fire. Peter would have nothing to come home to anyway. Except me. I back away from the bakery and bump into something, lose my balance, and find myself sitting on a hunk of sun-heated metal. I puzzle over what it might have been, then remember Thread's recent renovations to the square. Stocks, whipping posts, and this. The remains of the gallows. Bad. This is bad. It brings on the flood of images that torments me, awake or asleep. PETA being tortured, drowned, burned, lacerated, shocked, maimed beaten as the capital tries to get information about the rebellion that he doesn't know. I squeeze my eyes shut and try to reach for him across the hundreds and hundreds of miles, send my thoughts into his mind to let him know he's not alone. But he is. And I can't help him. Running away from the square and to the one place the fire did not destroy, I passed the wreckage of the mayor's house where my friend Madge lived. No word of her or her family. Were they evacuated to the capital because of her father's position, or left to the flames? Ashes billow up around me, and I pull the hem of my shirt up over my mouth. It's not wondering what I breathe in, but who that threatens to choke me. The grass has been scorched, and the gray snow fell here as well, but the twelve fine houses of the victor's village are unscathed. I bolt into the house I lived in for the past year, slam the door closed, and lean back against it. The place seems untouched, clean, eerily quiet. Why did I come back to twelve? How can this visit help me to understand the question I can't escape?
2: What am I going to do?
0: I whisper to the walls. Because I really don't know. People keep... ...talking at me. Talking, talking, talking. Plutarch Heavensby, his calculating assistant, Fulvia Cardew. A mishmash of district leaders, military officials. But not Alma Coyne, the president of Thirteen, who just watches. She's fifty or so, with grey hair that falls in an unbroken sheet to her shoulders. I'm somewhat fascinated by her hair, since it's so uniform. So without a flaw, a wisp, even a split end. Her eyes are gray, but not like those of people from the seam. They're very pale, as if almost all the color had been sucked out of them. The color of slush that you wished would melt away. What they want is for me to truly take on the role they designed for me. The symbol of the revolution. The Mockingjay. It isn't enough, what I've done in the past. Defying the capital in the games, providing a rallying point. I must now become the actual leader, the face the voice, the embodiment of the revolution. The person who the districts, most of which are now openly at war with the capital, can count on to blaze the path to victory. I won't have to do it alone. They have a whole team of people to make me over, dress me, write my speeches, orchestrate my appearances. As if that doesn't sound horribly familiar. And all I have to do is play my part. Sometimes I listen to them, and sometimes I just watch the perfect line of Coin's hair and try to decide if it's a wig. Eventually, I leave the room because my head starts to ache, or it's time to eat, or if I don't get above ground I might start screaming. I don't bother to say anything. I simply get up and walk out. Yesterday afternoon, as the door was closing behind me, I heard Coyne say, I told you we should have rescued the boy first. Meaning PETA. Couldn't agree more. He would have been an excellent mouthpiece. And who did they fish out of the arena instead? Me, who won't cooperate. BD, an older inventor from 3 who I rarely see because he was pulled into weapons development the minute he could sit upright. Literally, they wheeled his hospital bed into some top secret area and now he only occasionally shows up for meals. He's very smart and very willing to help the cause, but not really firebrand material. Then there's Finnick O'Dare, the sex symbol from the fishing district, who kept PETA alive in the arena when I couldn't. They want to transform Finnick into a rebel leader as well, but first they'll have to get him to stay awake for more than five minutes. Even when he's conscious, you have to say everything to him three times to get through to his brain. The doctors say it's from the electrical shock he received in the arena, but I know it's a lot more complicated than that. I know that Finnick can't focus on anything in 13, because he's trying so hard to see what's happening in the capital to Annie. The mad girl from his district, who's the only person on earth he loves. Despite serious reservations, I had to forgive Finnick for his role in the conspiracy that landed me here. He, at least, has some idea of what I'm going through. And it takes too much energy to stay angry with someone who cries so much. I move through the downstairs on Hunter's feet, reluctant to make any sound. I pick up a few remembrances, a photo of my parents on their wedding day, a blue hair ribbon for Prim, the family book of medicinal and edible plants. The book falls open to a page with yellow flowers and I shut it quickly because it was Peter's brush that painted them. What am I going to do? Is there any point in doing anything at all? My mother, my sister, and Gail's family are finally safe. As for the rest of 12, people are either dead, which is irreversible, or protected in 13. That leaves the rebels in the districts. Of course, I hate the capital, but I have no confidence that my being the Mockingjay will benefit those who are trying to bring it down. How can I help the districts when every time I make a move it results in suffering and loss of life? The old man shot in District 11 for whistling. The crackdown in 12 after I intervened in Gale's whipping. My stylist, Sinna, being dragged, bloody and unconscious, from the launch room before the games. Plutarch's sources believe he was killed during interrogation. Brilliant, enigmatic, lovely Sinna is dead because of me. I push the thought away because it's too impossibly painful to dwell on without losing my fragile hold on the situation entirely. What am I going to do to become the Mockingjay? Could any good that I do possibly outweigh the damage? Who can I trust to answer that question? Certainly not that crew in 13. I swear, now that my family and Gale are out of harm's way, I could run away, except for one piece of unfinished business, PETA. If I knew for sure he was dead, I could just disappear into the woods and never come back, but until I do, I'm stuck. I spin on my heel at the sound of a hiss. In the kitchen doorway, back arched, ears flattened, stands the ugliest tomcat in the world.
2: Buttercup,
0: I say. Thousands of people are dead, but he's survived and even looks well-fed. On what? He can get in and out of the house through a window. We always left a jar in the pantry. He must have been eating field mice. I refuse to consider the alternative. I squat down and extend a hand. Come here, boy. Not likely. He's angry at his abandonment. Besides, I'm not offering food, and my ability to provide scraps has always been my main redeeming quality to him. For a while when we used to meet up at the old house because we both disliked this new one we seemed to be bonding a little that's clearly over he blinks those unpleasant yellow eyes
2: do you want to see Prim?
0: I ask her name catches his attention besides his own it's the only word that means anything to him he gives a rusty meow and approaches me I pick him up Stroking his fur, and then go to the nearest closet and dig out my game bag, and unceremoniously stuff him into it. There's no other way I'll be able to carry him on board the hovercraft, and he means the world to my sister. Her goat lady, an animal of actual value, has unfortunately not made an appearance. I hear Gale's voice telling me we must go back. But the game bag has reminded me of one more thing that I want. I sling the strap of the bag over the back of a chair, and dash up the steps to my bedroom. Inside the closet hangs my father's hunting jacket. Before the quell, I brought it here from the old house, thinking its presence might be a sort of comfort to my mother and sister when I was dead. Thank goodness it would be ash now. The soft leather feels soothing, and for a moment I'm calmed by the memories of hours spent wrapped up in it. And then, inexplicably, my palms begin to sweat. A strange sensation creeps up the back of my neck. I whip around to face the room and find it empty. Tidy. Everything in its place. There was no sound to alarm me. What, then? My nose twitches. It's the smell. Cloying and artificial. A dab of white peeks out of a vase of dried flowers on my dresser. I approach it with cautious steps. There... All but obscured by its preserved cousins is a fresh white rose. Perfect, down to the last thorn and silken petal. And I know immediately who sent it to me President Snow. When I begin to gag at the stench, I back away and clear out. How long has it been here? A day? An hour? The rebel did a security sweep of the victor's village before I was cleared to come here, checking for explosives, bugs, anything unusual. But perhaps the rose didn't seem noteworthy to them. Only to me. Downstairs I snag the game bag off the chair, bouncing it along the floor until I remember it's occupied. On the lawn I frantically signal to the hovercraft while Buttercup thrashes. I jab him with my elbow, but this only infuriates him. A hovercraft materializes and a ladder drops down. I step on, and the current freezes me in place until I'm lifted aboard. Gale helps me from the ladder. You will right. Yeah, I say, wiping the sweat off my face with my sleeve. He left me a rose. I want to scream, but it's not information I'm sure I should share with someone like Plutarch looking on. First of all, because it will make me sound crazy, like I either imagined it, which is quite possible, or I'm overreacting, which will buy me a trip back to the drug-induced dreamland I'm trying so hard to escape. No one will fully understand. How it's not just a flower, not even just the president's nose flower, but a promise of revenge. Because no one else sat in the study with him when he threatened me before the Victory Tour. Positioned on my dresser. That white as snow rose is a personal message to me. It speaks of unfinished business. It whispers, I can find you.
1: I can reach you. Perhaps I'm watching you now.
0: An auspicious start (laughs) oh boy oh boy we are really back into it aren't we yeah that's that's what I'm thinking too Gwendog just a good chapter just a good chapter Uh, and with that in mind let's take a little bit of a chatter break chapter break chatter break that's the that's the word play there those of you who aren't keeping up my name is Sam this is Sidecar Stories And I hope you are all well. Hogwarts Hippie says, President Snow really angers me. I agree, Hogwarts Hippie. And uh, with that in mind, let's talk about President Snow a little bit. Let's talk about one of the antagonists of this series. Um, I think that's going to be our Chatterbreak question. what is the, what is the I, I want y'all to just sort of, honestly, it's not even a question as much as just short answer. What are your thoughts on the relationship between President Snow, the villain, the antagonist, and the Capitol, the antagonist? When you think about that, because You know, frankly, so much of this has been, so much of the the ire here has been directed at the Capitol sort of in general. Remember that President Snow, the named President Snow, the active President Snow, this character, didn't really show up until toward the end of book one. And wasn't the true villain that he became until book two began. Um, so much of the, the sort of like, I, I think part of it is simply putting a face onto something. Um, there is a term for it, I don't remember what it is, but essentially that President Snow, um, I mean, at, at the most basic, President Snow represents uh, the, the Capitol overall. It is the face that we sort of can put onto the Capitol, but... There's a lot more about the games that Katniss was angry about and hated than simply President Snow's doing. You know, part of it, yes, was what they were forced to do, and you know, a lot of that authority and power comes from President Snow or is currently resting in President Snow, whatever you want to call it, held by President Snow. Um, But a lot of what she hated was also, especially in Book One, how much of a show it was, how how it was designed for entertainment at this point, how this thing, 74 years old was you know it's a reminder of horror but it has been so glamorized in so many ways so i want y'all to just think about that i just want sort of short answer there's not even necessarily a question mark at the end of this but tell me your thoughts on the relationship between the antagonist president snow and the antagonist the Capitol. go ahead and talk about that over in chat meanwhile let's talk a bit of review um of course The quick quick review if you want to hear the whole thing you'll have to go search for flying sidecar wherever you get your podcasts um but if you're here and uh white wolf shirt hello i think white wolf t-shirt is the first time i've seen that name in here so hello and welcome to you if you are looking for back episodes you can find those wherever you get your podcasts spotify what have you look for flying sidecar and you'll find it over there Uh, you'll also find playlists for all of these things over in the playlist channel in discord And if you want to find the link over there use the links command the quickest possible review. At this point, y'all must know about the Hunger Games, right? All of these 12 districts ha- are forced to send people to fight one another to the death. Katniss has, over the course of two books, become the symbol of a revolution against the Capitol, against President Snow and the Capitol, who forced the districts to do this as a, as a, a payment for past crimes 75 years ago. Katniss has become this symbol, and as of the end of the last book, Katniss was freed by a group of rebels and brought to District 13. Turns out District 13 wasn't bombed into oblivion like everyone thought, but actually still exists and still works actively to try and oppose the Capitol. At least is making plans to do such. It's hard for Katniss right now to see what exactly they've been contributing to the process. As of this first chapter of today's book, um, Katniss has gone back to visit District 12. It's been completely bombed out. She meets Buttercup there. But overall, she does a lot of thinking. She does a lot of catching up with um, what is true, how things have settled out as a result of the activities since the end of the last book. Beattie, the... the, the gen- You know what? I'm not going to go through descriptions of who everybody is. Beattie has been... Um, uh, basically absorbed into the weapons segment of District Thirteen. Um, Finnick Odair appears to be very emotionally distraught. Um, he he, it, 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 there's a hard time getting through to him. He's probably has some literal brain damage, but also some real emotional trauma uh, because this person that he loves, Annie, is still back in her district, and he doesn't know what's happening to her. Gale is with Katniss, and with Katniss quite a bit, it seems. Our, um, uh, of course, PETA has been captured by the Capitol, and Katniss doesn't know what's happening with him either. His family was all killed in District 12. Um, Katniss's family was able to make it out, uh, as was, I think, Gale's family. I don't know if it was mentioned, um, but... District 12 is entirely gone, and the 800 or so people that survived the bombings, they have been essentially brought to District 13 as refugees. They're treated pretty well, um, but it seems like District 13 has sort of designs and aims of their own. At the core of it, at least for Katniss, their designs are the desire to turn Katniss into this symbol that uh, people have sort of made her. They want her to really become the Mockingjay. Really become this leader of a rebellion, and uh, as she wraps up this tour of her old home, she finds a white rose, fresh, clearly left for her um, by some uh, some messenger of President Snow's, as a as a reminder. I'm going to get you for what you did, and that's where we are. Let's continue on to see how Katniss fares and how she may respond to these demands made by District 13 to truly become this thing that everyone expects of her the Mocking Jay. Chapter 2 Are there capital hoverplanes speeding in to blow us out of the sky? As we travel over District 12, I watch anxiously for signs of an attack. But nothing pursues us. After several minutes, when I hear an exchange between Plutarch and the pilot confirming that the airspace is clear, I begin to relax a little. Gale nods at the howls coming from my game bag. Uh... Now I know why I ought to go back.
2: If there was even a chance of his recovery.
0: I dump the bag onto the seat where the loathsome creature begins his low, deep-throated growl. Ah. Oh, shut up, I tell the bag as I sink into the cushioned window seat across from it. Gail sits next to me. Pretty bad down there.
2: Couldn't be much worse,
0: I answer. I look in his eyes and see my own grief reflected there. Our hands find each other, holding fast to a part of Twelve that Snow has somehow failed to destroy. We sit in silence for the rest of the trip to Thirteen, which only takes about forty-five minutes. A mere week's journey on foot. Bonnie and Twill, the District 8 refugees who I encountered in the woods last winter, weren't so far from their destination after all. They apparently didn't make it, though. When I asked about them in Thirteen, no one seemed to know who I was talking about. Died in the woods, I guess. From the air, Thirteen looks about as cheerful as Twelve. The rubble isn't smoking, the way that the Capitol shows it on television, but there's next to no life above ground. In the 75 years since the Dark Days, when Thirteen was said to have been obliterated in the war between the Capitol and the districts, almost all new construction had been beneath the Earth's surface. It was already a substantial underground facility there, developed over centuries to be either a clandestine refuge for government leaders in a time of war, or a last resort for humanity if life above became unlivable. Most important for the people of Thirteen, it was the center of the capital's nuclear weapons development program. During the dark days, the rebels in Thirteen wrested control from the government forces, trained their nuclear missiles on the capital, and then struck a bargain. They would play dead, in exchange for being left alone. The capital had another nuclear arsenal out west, but it couldn't attack 13 without certain retaliation. It was forced to accept 13's deal. The capital demolished the visible remains of the district and cut off all access from the outside. Perhaps the capital's leaders thought that, without help, 13 would die off on its own. It almost did a few times, but it always managed to pull through due to strict sharing of resources, strenuous discipline, and constant vigilance against any further attacks from the capital. Now the citizens live almost exclusively underground. You can go outside for exercise and sunlight, but only at very specific times in your schedule. You can't miss your schedule. Every morning you're supposed to stick your right arm into this contraption on the wall. It tattoos the smooth inside of your forearm with your schedule for the day, in a sickly purple ink. 7 o'clock, breakfast, 7.30, kitchen duties, 8.30, education center, room 17, and so on. The ink is indelible until 2200, bathing, and that's when whatever keeps it water-resistant breaks down and the whole schedule rinses away. Lights out at 2230 signals that everyone not on the night shift should be in bed. At first, when I was so ill in the hospital, I could forego being imprinted. But once I moved into Compartment 307 with my mother and sister, I was expected to get with the program. Except for showing up for meals, though, I pretty much ignore the words on my arm. I just go back to our compartment, or wander around 13, or fall asleep somewhere hidden. An abandoned air duct, behind the water pipes and laundry. There's a closet in the education center that's great because no one ever seems to need school supplies. They're so frugal with things here, waste is practically a criminal activity. Fortunately, the people of Twelve have never been wasteful. But once I saw Fulvia Cardew crumple up a sheet of paper with just a couple of words written on it, and you would have thought she'd murdered someone from the looks that she got. Her face turned tomato red, making the silver flowers inlaid in her plump cheeks even more noticeable. The very portrait of excess. One of my few pleasures in Thirteen is watching the handful of pampered capital rebels squirming as they try to fit in. I don't know how long I'll be able to get away with my complete disregard for the clockwork precision of attendance required by my hosts. Right now, they leave me alone, because I'm classified as mentally disoriented. It says so right on my plastic medical bracelet, and everyone has to tolerate my ramblings. But that can't last forever. Neither can their patience with the Mockingjay issue. From the landing pad, Gale and I walk down a series of stairways to Compartment 307. We could take the elevator, only it reminds me too much of the one that lifted me into the arena. I'm having a hard time adjusting to being underground so much. But after the surreal encounter with the Rose, for the first time, the descent makes me feel safer. I hesitate at the door marked 307, anticipating the questions from my family.
2: What am I going to tell them about 12?
0: I ask Gail. Hmm. I doubt they'll ask for detail. They saw it burn. They'll mostly be concerned about how you're handling it. Gail touches my cheek. Like I am. I press my face against his hand for a moment. I'll survive. Then I take a deep breath and open the door. My mother and sister are home for 1800. Reflection, a half hour of downtime before dinner. I see the concern on their faces as they try to gauge my emotional state. Before anyone can ask anything, I empty my game bag and it becomes 1800, cat adoration. Prim just sits on the floor weeping and rocking that awful buttercup, who interrupts his purring only for an occasional hiss at me. He gives me a particularly smug look when she ties the blue ribbon around his neck. My mother hugs the wedding photo tightly against her chest, and then places it, along with the book of plants, on our government-issued chest of drawers. I hang my father's jacket on the back of a chair. For a moment, the place almost seems like home, so I guess the trip to Twelve wasn't a complete waste. We're headed down to the dining hall for 1830, dinner, when Gail's communicuff begins to beep it looks like an oversized watch but it receives print messages being granted a communicarf is a special privilege that's reserved for those important to the cause a status gale achieved by his rescue of the citizens of 12 i need the two of us in command trailing a few steps behind gale i try to collect myself before i'm thrown into what's sure to be another relentless mockingjay session i linger in the doorway of command the high-tech meeting-slash-war council room, complete with computerized talking walls, electronic maps showing the troop movements in various districts, and a giant rectangular table with control panels I'm not supposed to touch. No one notices me, though, because they're all gathered up at a television screen at the far end of the room that airs the capital broadcast around the clock. I'm thinking I might be able to slip away when Plutarch, whose ample frame has been blocking the television, catches sight of me and waves urgently for me to join him. I reluctantly move forward, trying to imagine how it could be of interest to me. It's always the same. War footage, propaganda, replaying the bombings of District 12. An ominous message from President Snow. So it's almost entertaining to see Caesar Flickerman, the eternal host of the Hunger Games, with his painted face and sparkly suit, preparing to give an interview. Until the camera pulls back up, and I see his guest is PETA a sound escapes me the same combination of gasp and groan that comes from being submerged in water deprived of oxygen to the point of pain i push people aside until i'm right in front of him my hand resting on the screen i search his eyes for any sign of hurt any reflection of the agony of torture there is nothing peter looks healthy to the point of robustness his skin is glowing, flawless in that full body polish way. His manner is composed, serious. I can't reconcile this image with the battered, bleeding boy who haunts my dreams. Caesar settles himself more comfortably into the chair across from Peter and gives him a long look. So, Peter, welcome back. Peter smiles slightly. But you thought that you'd done your last interview with me, Caesar. I confess I did. The night before the quarter quell, well, whoever thought that we'd see you again? Wasn't part of my plan, that's for sure, says Peter with a frown. Caesar leans into him a little. I think it was clear to all of us what your plan was, to sacrifice yourself in the arena so that Katniss Everdeen and your child could survive. That was it. Clear and simple. Peter's fingers traced the upholstered pattern on the arm of the chair. But other people had plans as well. Yes, other people had plans, I think. Has Peter guessed, then, how the rebels used us as pawns? how my rescue was arranged from the beginning, and finally, how our mentor, Hamish Abernathy, betrayed us both for a cause he pretended to have no interest in. In the silence that follows, I notice the lines have formed between Peter's eyebrows. He has guessed or he has been told, but the capital has not killed or even punished him, for right now, that exceeds my wildest hopes. I drink in his wholeness, the soundness of his body and mind. It runs through me like the morphling they give me in the hospital, dulling the pain of the last few weeks. Why don't you tell us what, uh, what about the last night in the arena? Suggests Caesar. Help us sort a few things out. Peter nods, but takes his time speaking. Uh, last night... To tell you about that last night Well first of all You've got to imagine How it felt In the arena It was like being an insect trapped under a bowl Filled with steaming air And all around you, jungle Green and alive and ticking That giant clock ticking away your life Every hour promising some new horror You have to imagine that in the past two days, 16 people have died. Some of them defending you. After eight things are gone, the last eight will be dead by morning, save one. The victor. And your plan is that it won't be you. My body breaks out a sweat at the memory. My hand slides down the screen and hangs limply at my side. Peter doesn't need a brush to paint images from the games. He works just as well in words. Once you're in the arena, the rest of the world becomes very distant, he continues. All the people and things that you loved or cared about almost cease to exist. The pink sky and the monsters in the jungle and the tributes who want your blood become your final reality. The only one that ever mattered. As bad as it makes you feel. You're going to have to do some killing Because in the arena you only get one wish And it's very costly It costs your life Says Caesar No, no It costs you a lot more than your life To murder innocent people It costs you everything that you are Everything you are Repeats Caesar quietly A hush has fallen over the room. And I can feel it spreading across Panem. A nation leaning in toward its screens. Because no one has ever talked about what it's really like in the arena before. Peter goes on. So you hold on to your last wish? And that last night, yes, my wish was to save Katniss. But even without knowing about the rebels... It didn't feel right. Everything was too complicated. I found myself regretting I hadn't run off with her earlier in the day, like she suggested. But there was no getting out of it at that point. You were too caught up in Beatty's plan to electrify the Salt Lake. Too busy playing allies with the others. I should have never let them separate us. Peter bursts out. That's when I lost her. "'When you stayed at the lightning tree and she and Joanna Mason took the coil of wire to the water,' Caesar clarifies. "'I didn't want to!' Peter flushes in agitation. "'But I couldn't argue with Beatty without indicating we were about to break away from the Alliance. "'When that wire was caught, everything just went insane. "'I can only remember bits and pieces trying to find her, watching Brutus kill Chaff, killing Brutus
2: myself.' I knew that she was calling my name, and then the lightning bolt hit the
0: tree and the force field around the arena blew out. Katniss blew it out, Peter. You've seen the footage. She didn't know what she was doing. None of us could follow Beatty's plan. You can see her trying to figure out what to do with that wire. Peter snaps back. All right, it it just looks suspicious, says Caesar. As if she was part of the rebel's plan all along. Peter's on his feet, leaning into Caesar's face, hands locked on the arms of his interviewer's chair. Really? And was it part of her plan for jonathan to nearly kill her? For that electric shock to paralyze her? To trigger the bombing? He's yelling now. She didn't know, Caesar! Neither of us knew anything except that we were trying to keep each other alive! Caesar places his hand on Peter's chest in a gesture that's both self-protective and conciliatory. Okay, Peter. I believe you. All right. Peter withdraws from Caesar, pulling back his hands, running them through his hair, mussing his carefully styled blonde curls. He slumps back in his chair, distraught. Caesar waits a moment, studying Peter. What about your mentor, Hamish Abernathy? Peter's face hardens. I don't know what Hamich knew. Could he have been part of the conspiracy? Asks Caesar. He never mentioned it. Caesar presses on. What does your heart tell you? That I shouldn't have trusted him. That's all. I haven't seen Hamich since I attacked him on the hovercraft, leaving long claw marks down his face. I know it's been bad for him here. District 13 strictly forbids any production or consumption of intoxicating beverages, and even the rubbing alcohol in the hospital is kept under lock and key. Finally, Haymitch is being forced into sobriety, with no secret stashes or home-brewed concoctions to ease his transition. They've got him in seclusion until he's dried out, as he's not deemed fit for public display. It must be excruciating, but I lost all my sympathy for Haymitch when I realized how he had deceived us. I hope he's watching the Capitol broadcast right now so we can see that Peter has cast him off as well. Caesar pats Peter's shoulder. We can stop now, if you want. Was there more to discuss? Asks Peter wryly. I was going to ask your thoughts on the war, but if you're too upset, begins Caesar, oh, I'm not too upset to answer that. He takes a deep breath and then looks straight into the camera. I want everyone watching. Whether you're on the capital or the rebel side to stop for just a moment and think about what this war could mean. For human beings, we almost went extinct fighting one another before. Now our numbers are even fewer. Our conditions are more tenuous. Is this really what we want to do? Kill ourselves off completely? In the hopes that What, some decent species will inherit the smoking remains of the earth? I don't... I'm not sure I'm following, says Caesar. We can't fight one another, Caesar. There won't be enough of us left to keep going if everyone doesn't lay down their weapons. And I mean, as in very soon, it's all over anyway. So, you're calling for a ceasefire? Yes. I'm calling for a ceasefire, says Peter tiredly. Now, why don't we ask the guards to take me back down to my quarter so I can build another hundred card houses? Caesar turns to the camera.
1: All right. I think that wraps it up. So, back to our regularly
0: scheduled programming. Music plays them out. And then there's a woman reading a list of expected shortages in the capital. Fresh fruit, solar batteries, soap. I watch her with uncharacteristic absorption because I know everyone will be waiting for my reaction to the interview. But there's no way I can process it all so quickly. The joy of seeing Peter alive and unharmed, his defense of my innocence in collaborating with the rebels, and his undeniable complicity with the capital now that he's called for a ceasefire. No, he made it sound as if he were condemning both sides in the war, but at this point, with only minor victories for the rebels, a ceasefire could only result in a return to our previous status. Or worse. Behind me I can hear the accusations against Peta building. The words traitor, liar, and enemy bounce off the walls. Since I can neither join in the rebels' outrage nor counter it, I decide to do the best thing and clear out. As I reach the door, Coin's voice rises above the others. You have not been dismissed, Soldier Everdeen. One of Coin's men lays a hand on my arm. It's not an aggressive move, really, but after the arena, I react defensively to any unfamiliar touch. I jerk my arm free and take off running down the halls. Behind me, there's a sound of a scuffle, but I don't stop. My mind does a quick inventory of my odd little hiding places, and I wind up in the supply closet curled up against a crate of chalk.
2: You're alive,
0: I whisper, pressing my palms against my cheeks, feeling the smile that's so wide it must look like a grimace. us alive and a traitor, but at the moment I don't care. Not what he says or who he says it for, only that he's still capable of speech. After a while, the door opens and someone slips in. Gale slides down next to me, his nose trickling blood.
2: "'What happened?'
0: I ask. "'I got in Boggs' way,' he answers with a shrug. I use my sleeve to wipe his nose. "'Watch it!' I try to be gentler, patting, not wiping.
2: "'Which one's he?'
0: "'Oh, you know, Coyne's right-hand lackey, the one who tried to stop you.' He pushes my hand away. "'All right, quit!' You're going to blame me to death. The trickle is turned into a steady stream. I give up on the first eight attempts.
2: You fought with Boggs.
0: No, just blocked the doorway when he tried to follow you. His elbow caught me in the nose, says Gail.
2: They'll probably punish you,
0: I say. Already have. He holds up his wrist. I stare at it uncomprehendingly. <laughs> Coin took back my communicuff I bite my lip, trying to remain serious But it seems so ridiculous I'm sorry, soldier Gail Hawthorne Don't be, soldier Katniss Everdeen He grins I felt like a jerk walking around with it anyway <laughs> I think it was quite an emotion <laughs> We both start laughing this is one of the few good things about Thirteen, getting Gale back. With the pressure of the Capitol's arranged marriage between Pita and me gone, we've managed to return our friendship. He doesn't push it any further, try to kiss me or talk about love. Either I've been too sick, or he's willing to give me space, or he knows it's just too cruel with Pita in the hands of the Capitol. Whatever the case, I've got someone to tell my secrets to again. Who are these people? I say. Leros? If we had nukes instead of a few lumps of coal? He answers.
2: I like to think the Twelve wouldn't have abandoned the rest of the Rebels back in the dark days.
0: I say. Well, we might have. If it was that, surrender or start a nuclear war. In a way, it's remarkable they survived it all. Maybe it's because I still have the ashes of my own district on my shoes, but for the first time... I give the people of Thirteen something I have withheld from them—credit—for staying alive against all odds. Their early years must have been terrible, huddled in the chambers beneath the ground after their city was bombed to dust, population decimated, no possible ally to turn to for aid. Over the past seventy-five years, they have learned to be self-sufficient, turned their citizens into an army, and built a new society with no help from anyone. They would be even more powerful if that pox epidemic hadn't flattened their birth rate and made them so desperate for a new gene pool and breeders. Maybe they are militaristic, overly programmed, and somewhat lacking in a sense of humor. But they're here, and willing to take on the capital.
2: Still, it took them long enough to show up,
0: I say. It wasn't simple. I had to build up a rebel base in the capital. Get some sort of underground organised in the districts Then they needed someone to set the whole thing in motion They needed you
2: They needed Peter too But they seem to have forgotten about that
0: Gail's expression hardens Peter might have done a lot of damage tonight Most of the rebels will dismiss what he said immediately of course But there are districts where the resistance is shakier a ceasefire is clearly President Snow's idea, but it seems reasonable, coming out of Peter's mouth. I'm afraid of Gale's answer, but I ask anyway.
2: Why do you think he'd said it?
0: He might have been tortured, or persuaded. It might guess that he made some kind of deal to protect you. He'd put forth the idea of a ceasefire if Snow let him present you as a confused, pregnant girl who had no idea what was going on. When she was taken prisoner by the rebels. This way, if the districts lose, there's still a chance of leniency for you. If you play it right. I must still look perplexed because Gail delivers the last line very slowly. Gatnus, he's still trying to keep you alive. To keep me alive? And then I understand. The games are still on. We have left the arena, but since Pita and I weren't killed, his last wish to preserve my life still stands. His idea is to have me lie low, remain safe and imprisoned, while this war plays out. Then neither side will really have cause to kill me, and Pita? If the rebels win, it will be disastrous for him. If the capital wins, who knows? Maybe we'll both be allowed to live, if I play it right. To watch the games go on. Images flash through my mind. The spear piercing Rue's body in the arena. Gale hanging senseless from the whipping post. The corpse-littered wasteland of my home. And for what? For what? As my blood turns hot, I remember other things. My first glimpse of an uprising in District 8 the victors locked hand in hand the night before the quarter quell and how it was no accident my shooting that arrow into the force field in the arena how badly I wanted it to lodge deep in the heart of my enemy I spring up upsetting a box of a hundred pencils sending them scattering around the floor what is it? Gale asks there can't be a ceasefire I lean down fumbling as I shove sticks of dark grey graphite back into the box we can't go back we know Gale sweeps up a handful of pencils and taps them on the floor into perfect alignment.
2: Whatever reason Pete had for saying those things, he's wrong.
0: The stupid sticks won't go in the box, and I snap several in my frustration. I know. Give it here. You're breaking them to bits. He pulls the box from my hands and refills it with swift, precise motions.
2: He doesn't know what they did to Twelve. If he could see what was going on on the ground,
0: I start. Godness, I'm not arguing. If I could hit a button and kill every living soul working for the capital, I would do it, without hesitation. He slides the last pencil into the box and flips the lid closed. The question is, what are you going to do? It turns out the question that's been eating away at me has only ever had one possible answer. But it took Peter's ploy for me to recognize it. What am I going to do? I take a deep breath. My arms rise slightly, as if recalling the black and white wings Sinna gave me, and then come to rest at my sides.
2: I'm going to be the Mockingjay.
0: Folks, with a with a heavy start to book three, I welcome you all back to Thursdays. This is, of course, Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. If you would like to find back episodes of this, including the previous two books, including the Percy Jackson, the Olympian series, including the Harry Potter series, Trans Rights or Human Rights, you can find those at Flying Sidecar. Look wherever you find your podcasts. Um, or you can head over to the Discord and you'll find some of the other stuff that's not up there. Uh, you can find basically links to everything over there. It's just not quite as neatly organized because a lot of it still needs to be uploaded officially yet. Uh, if you want literally every sort of video that I've ever put up, you can find those over in Discord. There are links over there. But uh uh, for the more recent stuff. You can find those wherever you find your podcasts. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories, and I'm about to take a five-minute break before we go into our final chapter of today. It's going to be Chapter 3. We've just read Chapters 1 and 2. We're going to be reading our final chapter. Before that, we're going to be talking a bit of review. Before that, we're going to talk a little discussion. And before that, I need to give you the discussion prompt. Let's talk about our chatter break question. Katniss has officially decided to be the Mockingjay. Now, I think my big question here is um, kind of a nuanced one, if I do say so myself. Um, we know that Katniss already, uh, before she was ever in the... Because remember, we, we spent two out of three full sections of the book, two-thirds of that book, book two, was spent outside of the arena. They didn't hit the arena until, chapter, uh, until uh, part three. So the first of... Uh, the first and second of the three parts of that book, all outside of the arena. And during like part two or even part, late part one, Katniss had already decided to participate in the rebellion, to do whatever she could to sort of help to move the, the rebellion forward. She was, this, she was pretty sure she wanted to just flee at one point, but she decided, nope, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to try and push the rebellion forward in whatever way that I can. Here's the Chatterbreak question. Chatterbreak question is, how is Katniss's decision to become the Mockingjay different from her, dis- her decision before to help participate in the rebellion? How is it different? What are some of the important differences in what will be expected of her for those two different things? What are the important differences in the ways that she will be expected to participate or the ways that she herself will want to participate? What do we think is going to be the difference between Katniss's agreement to become the Mockingjay, compared to her dedication before in book two, her dedication to just generally being part of the rebellion. There's our chatterbait question. I will see you all in just a bit. I'll see you in five minutes. If you're here on Twitch, you'll see the timer up on the screen. And if not, you'll just have to trust me. I'll see you all in five. Bye-bye. Hello everyone and welcome back. I hope you are well. And I hope you are I hope you are processing these last two chapters appropriately. They're heavy. I know they're heavy. I'm very excited to be into a new book, but of course when the going gets heavy, we just keep on reading. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. But we're doing it. <laughs> Yeah, there's no problem, Big Mama. <laughs> no worries, Big Mama. Coindog says the music right now really fits the mood of what's to come. Indeed. And I, this is a great piece of music. Um, some of it gets a little hinky with, uh, uh, there's like some synth uh, kind of aspects to it that I wish were done live. But of course, I, I, fully, I fully understand uh, some of the limitations of like putting free music out into the world okay and so let's just appreciate that this is music that was explicitly put out into the world such that it could be used for free i am really thankful for the people who do that um uh absolutely excellent um and it is called curiosity uh and it's by alexander nakaroda is his name i believe but uh yeah i i uh, is where i get uh, all my music but yeah Mm. It has been it has been great for this series. Lots of different moods occupied in that same song. Anyway, let's talk about that. That is a discussion for a different time. Although I would love to talk just like music and and how I use it for this, and how I would really love if somebody else would do it for me because I feel like there is a lot that could be done with like actual live DJing. I tried it for a little bit during I want to say Harry Potter book four, but. Um, I sort of quickly realized, like, there's a certain limit to the amount of bandwidth that I have. Even if I can hotkey everything perfectly, there's still, like, I have to be very... I have to have my mind doing a lot of things at once, and if that detracts from the reading, I think I count that as a failure. So. Some other time. But I would love a, a live producer to come in here and, and live mix uh, uh, music in with all of these, to just have a bank of, of like a dozen or two dozen dedicated songs for each show uh and be able to like crossfade those in i can do a little bit on wednesdays but look it's a different discussion as much as i want to have it i would love to talk about it in like live production but now is not the moment now is the moment to discuss our chatter break question which was what is the difference between katniss's two commitments that she's made because she's just said she's going to become the mockingjay what does that mean and how is that different from what she's sort of promised herself before, which was to participate in the rebellion in a more general sense. Let's talk about what that means. Let's chit-chat, my friends. Courtney says, I think the main thing is that she now is more willing to put herself out there as the face of this rebellion, and she'll be more proactive to take steps to show her defiance against the Capitol. Yes, indeed, putting herself out there as the face, it's kind of an interesting note, Courtney, because Uh, Up until now, she's been pretty insistent, like, yeah, of course there's going to be a face to the rebellion. It's going to be PETA. As a matter of fact, the biggest thing I could do for the rebellion is to keep PETA alive through these games so that when he comes out the other end, so when he leaves the arena, he can be the voice of the arena, the face of of the rebellion, the face of the rebellion. A good thought. Now... He can't be. As a matter of fact, he has publicly declared himself not to be, and he never will be. No matter no matter kind of what he says at this point, he can't really come back from that declaration he just made in that last chapter. Um, you know, asking for a ceasefire, which, with the way things have been going so far, really just means the capital is essentially won. Marin Vare says, "'I think it's different this time because in Book 2 she didn't really fully know what she was getting herself and her district into.'" This time she knows a bit more, and she's seen what lengths the capital is willing to go through to keep things as they were. Marin Vera, an excellent thought. Her understanding of what her actual activities are going to be are probably different, right? Um, Courtney has has very accurately said that she's now going to be a face of something rather than just sort of do what she does and hope for the best and 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 not try to de- not try to deny her involvement. Marin Vera is talking about the stakes of it now and the stakes are really important in any story. What is at risk here? What is what is at stake? And um, it's, it's one of my, the, the big things that I think uh, is hard for writers to wrap their heads around, even talented ones, but the stakes. The stakes that Katniss knows she's getting herself into. Yes, before participating in the rebellion, she knows she was gonna get, you know, uh, she she probably wasn't going to make it. Her intent was not to make it out alive. But now, the lengths that the cap was willing to go, the whole of District 12 got bombed out to nothing. They were willing to take out a whole district. And keep in mind, we're not talking about even like, like consider the United States of America, 50 states. It would be, it would be nuts. It would be crazy if somebody, uh, if, if it was decided to somehow eliminate one of those states. That would be insane. Now... Consider how much smaller Pan Am and what percentage of that District 12 actually is. District 12, they're, they're not even population distributions, but like imagine getting rid of a 12th of the United States. Um, that would be, what would that come out to? It wouldn't be five, it would be like four states. Right, which at that point, like that is, that is a whole region like that that would be the whole you know south uh uh, southwestern u.s um could could very well be that could be the almost the entirety of new england up there that would be crazy someone please tell me if my math is correct it feels wild to me for some reason four seems wrong um what's four times 12 i'm in the neighborhood anyway um the the stakes are absolutely different and yeah now katniss realizes Okay, the the capital is willing to totally destroy Pan Am if it means they're on top of that heap of rubble when it lands. Hogwarts says, I think Katniss's decision to become the Mockingjay is a deeper commitment than she has, um, is a deeper commitment and she has more of a choice. There's so much more at stake now. I also think she's more mature and therefore able to better grasp the seriousness of being the face of the rebellion. She isn't simply fighting for a district. She's standing up for all of them to be free. I like that quite a bit too, Hogwarts hippie. You know, being part of the rebellion, I think it was before being part of the rebellion. And now, like you said, she's standing up not just for 12, but for all of them. Consider the weight that one is putting on one's own shoulders when they say that. It's one thing to sort of say, yeah, I'm from this place and I care about them very deeply. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to, uh, to, to help them out. And whatever this means for the rebellion at large, fantastic. I'm here to help. And now think about what it means to get up in front of people and say, People that you have never met, people you would have never met because they're from different districts, different parts of the world, places that were intentionally isolated and separated from you. People who you have never met and probably never will meet. Consider standing in front of them, either literally or on a TV screen, you know what I mean, and saying, I am now your champion. Ooh, that's cold. That's icy right there. Right? That is, that is a that is a shock. Um, putting that much weight on your own shoulders. Picking it up and putting it on yourself. That's huge. It's enormous. Big Mama says, I think her new role as the Mockingjay will be more challenging for Kat. As she doesn't like to take orders or even direction from others. She, she feels she can only trust herself. Y'all, you're hitting like every great point along the way. Big Mama, yes. Before... She was just part of something bigger than herself, right? She still made all of her own decisions, essentially. Um, And when she wasn't making her own decisions, she was being forced to do something by the very thing that she was rebelling against, right? And so every time she made her own decision, it was an act of rebellion against this one group that that, uh, dares to tell her what to do. Now... To become the mockingjay is to accept a crown made by someone else right It is to sit in a throne made by somebody else it is to i'm not going to go into any more metaphors i promise um it is to accept that other people control a part of this image a part of this identity that you are about to accept for your own right when you're about to take this on um katniss isn't just a rebel she's not just katniss everdeen the rebel Even if she is super high profile, now she's going to accept the mantle of this thing created and controlled, in a way, by someone else. Taking orders. That's going to be new for Katniss. Fantastic discussion, gang. And very concise. A bit of review, then we move on into Chapter 3. Let's do it. Chapters 1 and 2. Of course, we got to this point. Katniss is a member of Pan Am, thrust into the Hunger Games, and uh, now finds herself at the leader of this, uh, at the head, I should say, of this rebellion. Um, As of chapter 1 of today's book, uh, we find that Katniss is living in District 13, along with the refugees of District 12. There are only 800 of them, because the moment that Katniss took out the arena shield the hovercraft from the capital were dispatched and the entirety of district 12 was bombed off the map. Entirely off the map. There is no more district 12. Fortunately, it turns out district 13 is still active, but they've had a hard time. They had a a pox epidemic. Um, they have not had an easy time of things and they need, uh, new people. They need, uh, uh, additions to the gene pool so they don't, you know, die off of, of, uh, (laughs) Uh, uh, What is it? Genetic limits? Uh, Genetic scarcity? Don't remember what the term is. Um, They don't have enough people (laughs) to keep the gene pool diverse enough to survive. Um, As of our first chapter, Katniss is visiting the bombed out District 12 and thinking about what has become of her world. Beattie has been uh, uh, drawn into the weapons program. Finnick is... Uh, constantly just out of it, um, and she herself is still not completely recovered from the concussion that she got at the hands of Joanna Mason. Joanna Mason, no word about her. She has been captured by the Capitol. PETA, also no word about him until chapter two of today's reading, uh, in which Katniss has been instructed to attend a uh, sort of a, a, a command meeting with Gail, who is kind of staying right by her side through a lot of this. Um, she feels very encouraged about that, even though it, it's kind of oppressive conditions, being underground, having very, very strict resource management by District 13 authorities. She attends this meeting, and we get our first... our first encounter with PETA after such a long time. PETA is on television being interviewed by Caesar Flickerman, the, the classic games interviewer, and we find that PETA is apparently not being harmed. He says he's building card houses where he's been locked up in his quarters. Locked up, yes, in his quarters, yes, but not being tortured, it would seem, as Katniss had anticipated. Heading into uh, uh, this discussion, um, Caesar is interviewing PETA about that last night in the games, and, and PETA talks about how it felt, how it felt to be in this this hot environment like an insect trapped underneath a glass full of steam air Um, uh, how it is to have to kill people um, and how it is to not only expect but intend that you will not leave that arena alive because you're trying to keep someone else alive he talks about all that and as they wrap up this discussion he illuminates that in his mind Katniss had absolutely no idea what was going on He doesn't know what Hamish was thinking. Who knows whether or not he was involved with it, but Katniss was not involved. He, PETA, was not involved either. Um, And uh, he sort of defends Katniss as still being this thing that Katniss herself had tried to pretend to be prior to the 75th Hunger Games. Just this sort of, maybe not silly anymore, but at the very least sort of love-struck, kind of confused girl who didn't know what to do. and then he calls for a ceasefire, which in the current circumstances, essentially just means, Rebels, lay down your guns. We're going back to the way that it was. In District 13, this is taken as, I mean, kind of treasonous, frankly. Um, And we shall see how Katniss is able to spin this when it comes time to make her demands. Enjoy chapter 3. Chapter 3 Buttercup's eyes reflect the faint glow of the safety light over the door as he lies in the crook of Prim's arm, back on the job, protecting her from the night. She's snuggled close to my mother. Asleep, they look just as they did the morning of the reaping that landed me in my first games. I have a bed to myself because I'm recuperating and because no one can sleep with me anyway, what with the nightmares and the thrashing around. After tossing and turning for hours, I finally accept that it will be a wakeful night. Under Buttercup's watchful eye, I tiptoe across the cold, tiled floor to the dresser. The middle drawer contains my government-issued clothes. Everyone wears the same gray pants and shirt, the shirt tucked in at the waist. Underneath the clothes, I keep the few items I had on me when I was lifted from the arena. My Mockingjay pin, Peter's token, the gold locket with the photos of my mother and Prim and Gail inside. A silver parachute that holds a spile for tapping trees and the pearl Peter gave me a few hours before I blew out the force field. District 13 confiscated my tube of skin ointment for the use in the hospital and my bow and arrow because only guards have clearance to carry weapons. They're in safekeeping in the armory. I feel around for the parachute and slide my fingers inside until they close around the pearl. I sit back on my bed, cross-legged, and find myself rubbing the smooth, iridescent surface of the pearl back and forth against my lips. For some reason, it's soothing. A cool kiss from the giver himself. Katniss? Prim whispers. She's awake, peering at me through the darkness.
2: What's wrong? Nothing. I just had a bad dream. Go back to sleep.
0: It's automatic, shutting Prim and my mother out of things to shield them. Careful not to rouse my mother, Prim eases herself from the bed, scoops up Buttercup, and sits beside me. She touches the hand that is curled around the pearl.
2: You're cold. You're
0: cold. Taking a spare blanket from the foot of the bed, she wraps it around all three of us, enveloping me in her warmth and Buttercup's furry heat as well.
2: You could tell me, you know? I'm going to keep in secrets, even from mother.
0: <sighs> She's really gone then. The little girl with the back of her shirt sticking out like a duck tail, the one who needed help reaching the dishes and who begged me to see the frosted cakes in the bakery window. Time and tragedy have forced her to grow too quickly. At least for my taste to a young woman who stitches bleeding wounds and knows our mother can hear only so much.
2: Tomorrow morning, I'm going to agree to be the Mockingjay. Because you want to, or because you feel forced to? I laugh a little. <laughs> Both, I guess. No, I-, I want to. I have to. If it'll help the Rebels defeat Snow.
0: I squeeze the pearl more tightly in my fist.
2: It's just... Peter. I'm afraid that if we do win, the rebels will execute him as a traitor.
0: Prim thinks this over.
2: Katniss, I don't think you understand how important you are to the cause. Important people usually get what they want. If you want to keep Peter safe from the rebels, you can.
0: I guess I'm important. They went to a lot of trouble to rescue me. They took me to twelve. You mean
2: I could demand they give Peter immunity? And they'd have to agree to it. I think you could demand almost anything, and they'd have to agree to it.
0: Prim wrinkles her brow.
2: Only how do you know they'll keep their word?
0: I remember all the lies Hamich told Peter and me to get us to do what he wanted, What's to keep the rebels from reneging on the deal? A verbal promise behind closed doors, even a statement written on paper. These could easily evaporate after the war. Their existence or validity denied. Any witnesses in the command will be worthless. In fact, they'd probably be the ones writing out Peter's death warrant. I'll need a much larger pool of witnesses. I'll need everyone I can get.
2: It'll have to be public,
0: I say. Buttercup gives a flick of his tail that I take as agreement.
2: I'll make coin announce it in front of the entire population of 13. Prim smiles. Oh, that's good. It's not a guarantee, but it'll be much harder for them to back out of their promise.
0: I feel the kind of relief that follows an actual solution.
2: I should wake you up more often, little duck. I wish you would,
0: says Prim. She gives me a kiss.
2: Try and sleep now, all right?
0: And I do. In the morning, I see that 0700, breakfast, is directly followed by 0730, command, which is fine, since I may as well start the ball rolling. At the dining hall, I flash my schedule, which includes some kind of ID number, in front of a sensor. As I slide my tray along the metal shelf before the vats of food, I see breakfast as its usual dependable self. A bowl of hot grain, a cup of milk, and a small scoop of fruits or vegetables. Today, mashed turnips. All of it comes from 13's underground farms. I sit at the table assigned to the Everdeens and the Hawthorns and some other refugees and shovel my food down, wishing for seconds, but there are never seconds here. They have nutrition down to a science. You leave with enough calories to take you to your next meal, no more, no less. Serving size is based on your age, height, body type, health, and amount of physical labor required by your schedule. The people from 12 are already getting slightly larger portions than the natives of 13 in an effort to bring us up to weight. I guess bony soldiers tire too quickly. It's working, though. In just a month, we're starting to look healthier. Particularly the kids. Gale sets his tray beside me, and I try not to stare at his turnips too pathetically. Because I really want more, and he's already too quick to slip me his food. Even though I turn my attention to neatly folding my napkin a spoonful of turnips slops into my bowl.
2: You've got to stop that,
0: I say. But since I'm already scooping up the stuff, it's not too convincing.
2: Really, it's probably illegal or
0: something. They have very strict rules about food. For instance, if you don't finish something and you want to save it for later, you can't take it from the dining hall. Apparently, in the early days, there was some incident of food hoarding. For a couple of people like Gail and me, who have been in charge of our family's food supply for years, it doesn't sit well. "'We know how to be hungry, but not how to be told how to handle what provisions we have. "'In some ways, District 13 is even more controlling than the Capitol.' "'What can they do? "'They've already got my communicoff,' says Gale. "'As I scrape my bowl clean, I have inspiration.'
2: "'Hey, maybe I should make that a condition of being the Mockingjay?'
0: "'That I can f- feed you turnips?'
2: "'No, that we can hunt.'
0: "'That gets his attention.'
2: We'd have to give everything to the kitchen, but still, we could...
0: I don't have to finish, because he knows. We could be above ground, out in the woods. We could be ourselves again. Do it, he says. Now's the time. You could ask for the moon. They'd have to find a way to get it to you. He doesn't know that I'm already asking for the moon by demanding they spare Peter's life. Before I can decide whether or not to tell him, a bell signals the end of our eating shift. The thought of facing coin alone makes me nervous.
2: What are you scheduled for?
0: Gail checks his arm. Nuclear history class. Where, by the way, your absence has been noted.
2: I have to go to command. You come with me.
0: All right. But they might throw me out after yesterday. As we go to drop off our trays, he says, You know, you better put Buttercup in your list of demands too. I don't think the concept of useless pets is well-known around here.
2: Oh, they'll find him a job. Tattoo it on its paw
0: every morning, I say. But I make a mental note to include him, for Prim's sake. By the time we get to command, Coyne, Plutarch, and all of their people have already assembled. The sight of Gale raises some eyebrows, but no one throws him out. My mental notes have become too jumbled, so I ask for a piece of paper and a pencil right off. My apparent interest in the proceedings... The first I've shown since I've been here takes them by surprise. Several looks are exchanged. Probably they had some extra special lecture planned for me. But instead, Coin personally hands me the supplies, and everyone waits in silence while I sit at the table and scrawl out my list. Buttercup. Hunting. Peter's immunity announced in public. This is it. Probably my only chance to bargain think. What else do I want? I feel him standing at my shoulder. Gail, I add to the list. I don't think I can do this without him. The headache's coming on and my thoughts begin to tangle. I shut my eyes and start to recite silently.
2: My name is Katniss Everdeen. I'm 17 years old. My home is District 12. I was in the Hunger Games. I escaped. The capital hates me. Peter was taken prisoner. He's alive. "'He's a traitor, but alive. "'I have to keep him alive.'
0: "'The list. "'It still seems too small. "'I should try to think bigger, beyond our current situation, "'where I am of utmost importance to the future, "'where I may be worth nothing. "'Shouldn't I be asking for more? "'For my family? For the remainder of my people? "'My skin itches with the ashes of the dead. "'I feel the sickening impact of the skull against my shoe.' The scent of blood and roses stings my nose. The pencil moves across the page on its own. I open my eyes and see the wobbly letters. I kill snow. If he's captured, I want the privilege. Plutarch gives a discreet cough.
1: About done there.
0: I glance up and notice the clock. I've been sitting here for twenty minutes. Finnick isn't the only one with attention problems. Yeah, I say. My voice sounds hoarse, so I clear my throat.
2: Yeah, so this is the deal. I'll be your Mockingjay.
0: I wait so that they can make their sounds of relief, congratulate, slap one another on the back. Coin stays impassive as ever, watching me unimpressed.
1: But
2: I have some conditions.
0: I smooth out the list and begin.
2: My family gets to keep our cat.
0: My tiniest request sets off an argument. The Capital Rebels see this as a non-issue. Of course I can keep my pet, while those from Thirteen spell out what extreme difficulties this presents. Finally, it's worked out that we'll be moved to the top level, which has the luxury of an eight-inch window above ground. Buttercup may come and go and do his business. He will be expected to feed himself. If he misses curfew, he will be locked out. If he causes any security problems, he'll be shot immediately. That sounds okay. Not so different from how he's been living since we left. Except for the shooting part. If he looks too thin, I can slip him a few entrails, provided my next request is allowed.
2: I want to hunt with Gale out in the woods,
0: I say. This gives everyone pause. We won't go far. We'll use our own bows. You can have them eat for the kitchen, adds scale. I hurry on before they can say no.
2: It's just, I can't breathe shut up in here like a... I would get better, faster, if I could hunt.
0: Plutarch begins to explain the drawbacks here. The dangers, the extra security, the risk of injury. But Coin cuts him off. No. Let's him. Give them two hours a day, deducted
2: from their training time. A quarter mile radius, with communication units and tracker anklets. What's next?
0: I skim my list.
2: Gail, I'll need him with me to do this. With you how? Off camera, by your side at all times. Do you want him presented as your new lover?
0: Coyne asks. She hasn't said this with any particular malice. Quite the contrary, her words are very matter of fact but my mouth still drops open in shock.
2: What?
1: I think we should continue the current romance. A a quick defection from Peter would cause the audience to lose sympathy for her, says Plutarch, especially since they think she's pregnant with his child. Agreed. So,
2: on screen, Gale can simply be portrayed as a fellow rebel, is that all right?
0: says Coyne. I just stare at her. She repeats herself impatiently. For Gale, will that be sufficient? We could always work him in as your cousin," says Fulvia. "We're not cousins," Gale and
1: I say together. Right, but we should probably keep that up for appearances' sake on camera," says Plutarch. Off camera, he's all yours. Anything else?
0: I'm rattled by the turn in the conversation. The implications that I could so readily dispose of PETA, that I'm in love with Gail, that the whole thing has been an act. My cheeks begin to burn. The very notion that I'm devoting any thought to who I want presented as my lover, given our current circumstances, is demeaning. I let my anger propel me into my greatest demand.
1: When the
2: war is over, if we've won, Peter will be pardoned.
1: Dead silence.
0: I feel Gale's body tense. I guess I should have told him before, but I wasn't sure how he'd respond. Not when it involved Peta.
2: No form of punishment will be inflicted, I
0: continue. A new thought occurs to me. The same goes
2: for other captured tributes,
0: Joanna and Ibaria. Frankly, I don't care about Anabaria, the vicious District 2 tribute. In fact, I dislike her, but it seems wrong to leave her out. "'No,' says Coyne flatly.
2: "'Yes,' I shoot back. "'It's not their fault you abandoned them in the arena. "'Who knows what the Capitol's doing to them?' "'They will be tried with other war criminals "'and treated as the tribunal
0: sees fit,' she says. "'They'll be granted immunity.' "'I feel myself rising from my chair, my voice full and resonant. "'You will personally pledge this in
2: front of the entire population of District 13 "'and the remainder of 12? "'Soon?' Today it'll be recorded for future generations. You will hold yourself and your government responsible for their safety, or you're gonna find yourself another Mockingjay."
0: My words hang in the air for a long moment. That's her. I hear Fulvia hiss to Plutarch, right there, with the
1: costume gunfire in the background. Just a hint of smoke. Yes. That's what we want,
0: says Plutarch under his breath. I want to glare at them, but I feel it would be a mistake to turn my attention from coin. I can see her tallying the cost of my ultimatum, weighing it against my possible worth.
1: What do you say, President?
0: Asks Plutarch.
1: You could issue an official pardon, given the circumstances. The boy, he's not even of age.
2: All right,
0: Coyne says finally,
2: but you'd better perform. I'll perform when you've made the announcement, I say. Call the National Security Assembly during the reflection
0: today, she orders.
2: I'll make the announcement then. Is
0: there anything left on your list, Katniss? My paper's crumpled into a ball in my right fist. I flatten the sheet against the table and read the rickety letters.
2: Just one more thing.
0: I kill snow. For the first time ever, I see a hint of a smile on the president's lips. When the time comes, I'll flip you for it. Maybe she's right. I certainly don't have the sole claim against Snow's life. And I think I can count on her getting the job done. Fair enough. Coyne's eyes have flickered to her arm, the clock. She, too, has a schedule to adhere to. I'll leave her in your hands, then, Plutarch. She exits the room, followed by her team, leaving only Plutarch, Fulvia, Gale, and myself.
1: Excellent, excellent.
0: Plutarch sinks down, elbows on the table, rubbing his eyes.
1: You know what I miss more than anything? Coffee. I ask you, would it be so unthinkable to have something to wash down the gruel and the turnips?
2: Oh, you didn't think it would be, uh quite so rigid here.
0: Fulvia explains to us as she massages Plutarch's shoulders.
2: Not in the higher ranks.
1: Or at least it'd be the option of a little side action, says Plutarch. I mean, even Twelve had a black market, right?
0: Yeah, the hob, says Gale. That's why we tried it.
1: See, there. Look how moral you two are. Virtually incorruptible.
0: Plutarch sighs. Uh, yeah, well... Wars don't last forever. So, glad to have you on the team. He reaches a hand out to the side, where Fulvia is already extending a large sketchbook bound in black leather.
1: You know, in general, what we're asking of you, Katniss, I'm aware you've mixed feelings about participating. I hope this will help.
0: Plutarch slides the notebook across to me. For a moment, I look at it suspiciously. And then, curiosity gets the better of me, I open the cover and find a picture of myself, standing straight and strong in a black uniform. Only one person could have designed the outfit. At first glance, utterly utilitarian. At second, a work of art. The swoop of the helmet, the curved the breastplate, the slight fullness of the sleeves that allows the white folds under the arms to show. In his hands, I am again a Mockingjay. "'Sinna?' I whisper.
1: "'Yes. He made me promise not to show you this book "'until you'd decided to be the Mockingjay on your own. "'Believe me, I was very tempted,'
0: says Plutarch.
1: "'Go on. Flip through.'
0: "'I turn the pages carefully, seeing each detail of the uniform, "'the tailored layers of the body armor, "'the hidden weapons in the boots and belt.' The special reinforcements over my heart. On the final page, under a sketch of my Mockingjay pin, Sin has written, I'm still betting on you.
2: When
1: did he?
0: My voice fails me.
1: Let's see. Uh, well, after the quarter quell announcement, a few weeks before the games, maybe. There are not only the sketches, we have your uniforms. Oh, and B.D.'s got something really special waiting for you down in the armory. I won't spoil it by hinting, says Plutarch.
0: You're going to be the best dressed rebel in history, says Gale with a smile. Suddenly, I realize he's been holding out on me. Like Cinna, he's wanted me to make this decision all along.
1: Our plan is to launch an airtime assault,
0: says Plutarch.
1: Make a series of what we call propos, which is short for propaganda spots. Featuring you and broadcast them to the entire population of Pan Am.
0: Oh, the capital's got sole control of the broadcasts, says Gale.
1: But we have Beatty. About ten years ago, he essentially redesigned the underground network that transmits all the programming. He thinks there's a reasonable chance it can be done. Of course, we'll need something to air. So, Katniss... The studio awaits your pleasure."
0: Plutarch turns to his assistant.
1: Fulvia.
2: Plutarch and I have been talking about how on earth we can pull this off. We think it might be best to build you our rebel leader from the outside in. That is to say, let's find the most stunning Mockingjay look possible and then work your personality up to deserving it.
0: She says brightly. You've already got her uniform says Gale.
2: Yes, but is she scarred and bloody? Is she glowing with the fire of rebellion? Just how grimy can we make her without disgusting people? At any rate, she has to be something. I mean, obviously, this.
0: Volvia moves in on me quickly, framing my face with her hands. Won't cut it. I jerk my head back reflexively, but she's already busying herself gathering her things.
2: So, with that in mind, we have another little surprise for you. Come come.
0: Fulvia gives us a wave, and Gail and I follow her and Plutarch out into the hall. So well-intended, yet so insulting, Gail whispers in my ear.
2: Welcome to the capital,
0: I mouth back, but Fulvia's words have no effect on me. I wrap my arms tightly around the sketchbook and allow myself to feel hopeful. This must be the right decision, if Senna wanted it. We board an elevator, and Plutarch checks his notes.
1: Let's see. Compartment 3908.
0: He presses a button marked 39, but nothing happens.
2: You must have to key it,
0: says Fulvia. Plutarch pulls a key attached to a thin chain from under his shirt and inserts it into a slot I hadn't noticed before. The doors slide shut.
1: Ah, there we are.
0: The elevator descends 10, 20, 30-plus levels, further down than I even knew District 13 went. It opens into a wide, white corridor lined with red doors, which look almost decorative compared to the gray ones on the upper floors. Each is plainly marked with a number. 3901, 3902, 3903. As we step out, I glance behind me to watch the elevator close, and I see a metallic grate slide into place over the regular doors. When I turn, a guard has materialized from one of the rooms at the far end of the corridor. A door swings silently shut behind him as he strides toward us. Plutarch moves to meet him, raising a hand in greeting, and the rest of us follow behind him. Something feels very wrong down here. It's more than the reinforced elevator, or the claustrophobia of being so far underground, or the caustic smell of antiseptic. One look on Gale's face, and I can tell he senses it as well.
1: Good morning. We were just looking for...
0: Plutarch begins. You got the wrong floor, says the guard abruptly. Really? Plutarch double-checks his notes.
1: Got 3908 written right here. I wonder if you could just give a call up to... I'm afraid I have to ask you to leave now. Assignment discrepancies can be handled at the head office,
0: says the guard. It's right ahead of us, compartment 3908 just a few steps away. The door, in fact, all the doors, seem incomplete. No knobs. They must swing free on hinges like the one that the guard appeared through.
2: Where is that again?
0: Asks Folia. You'll find the head office on level seven, says the guard, extending his arms to corral us back to the elevator. From behind door 3908 comes a sound. Just a tiny whimper. Like something a cowed dog might make to avoid being struck. Only all too human and familiar. My eyes meet Gale's for just a moment, but it's long enough for two people who operate the way that we do. I let Sinna's sketchbook fall at the guard's feet with a loud bang. A second after he leans down to retrieve it, Gale leans down too, intentionally bumping heads. Oh, (laughs) sorry, he says with a light laugh, catching the guard's arms as if to steady himself, turning him slightly away from me. That's my chance. I dart around the distracted guard, push open the door marked 3908 and find them, half-naked, bruised and shackled to the wall. My prep team. Well, good people, I hope you are all excited for what comes after this. <sighs> heavy chapters, heavy chapters, everybody. Pretty Spade says, I missed one thing when my twitch glitched. What was the whimper? Um, it was just a, a little sound made by someone behind this door, and then we, uh, uh, Katniss barges through the door to find it's her prep team. Her prep team, which I think it's possible that I would be a little lost in this one because that is it's it's all lowercase. It's not a proper noun or anything, just my prep team. Um, these are the folks, like, these are Sina's assistants prep team, the ones from the capital prep team, that prep team. So uh, if you're wondering what the deal is there, there's the deal. There it is. Folks, I thank you very, very much for joining me today. Heck of a few chapters. How do we think Katniss is processing all this? She made a good stand. This is, this is a, this was a good, um, uh, this was a good example of her exerting the authority that a leader has to exert, right? She has things that she needs, and she is exerting them. She makes this deal with, uh, with District Thirteen, with President Coin, etc., and it's going to be announced to the entire district, and so there's not going to be any like. Oh yeah, we'll shake hands on this behind closed doors and then later on maybe we remember that we did it Maybe we don't. Maybe you're the only one who remembers. Maybe you're crazy Either way can't do anything about it now No, no, no none of that none of that it's going to be announced before the entire district so that they are held accountable District 13 is held accountable because this is a big ask from Katniss, right? This is a big ask she has she she watched pita essentially betray the rebellion he did it on live national tv she watched it happen now gail has explained to her because as the text says she it wasn't quite clicking with her without gail mentioning it pita's still trying to keep her alive but on her end she has to keep pita alive too and in this way like she says the games haven't really ended the arena is done with but the games aren't over neither of them are dead so they both still have this mission to protect one another and uh, a big part of that is protecting pita from this large group of people that he just betrayed and she is trying to both help and also not let them do a terrible thing later awkward tippy says i'm not really a big fan of president coin is it just me I think President Coin is is intended to represent what leadership can be. Um, I won't say what leadership must be because I simply don't have the experience to to, to contribute in that way. But um, certainly, what 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 leadership can become under such stressful conditions, right? Um, when when your enemy the capital and by the capital's control all of their various combined resources when your enemy is so much bigger than you you have to be so much more organized or so much smarter or so much uh, more dedicated uh or so much more crafty or so much more productive or so much more disciplined or very likely some combination of a lot of those things and President Coin is the one who oversees that. Marin Vare and Proteus fate says no, not just you, not just you. My thought about President Coin are uh, are is essentially that this is kind of what uh, what leadership can sometimes become against insurmountable odds, or against nearly insurmountable odds. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I tend to think back on, I, I tend to try and, and center it around the single question of who is right. And it is very possible, we're gonna find out things about President Coin later on. Again, I don't remember this book as well as I remember the first two, so we very well may find some things out about President Coin that say, well, no, they, maybe there's not this moral high ground here. But as far as what we know currently, Who is the one in the wrong and sometimes when there are two sides both sides are wrong both sides are right those those can either be those are definitely possibilities in certain disagreements but sometimes there is one side that is wrong and one side that is right and one of these sides there's president coin and president uh, uh uh president snow one of these people is making children fight to the death, and one of them is very strict about food. and when it comes to uh, uh when it comes to how to treat uh, essentially betrayers of the rebellion, what is the quote here? The quote is not he will be executed, but it is he will be tried by a tribunal, right he he will be um, ah oh boy, I don't know if I can find it. um. It's close here Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. they'll be tried with other war criminals and treated as the tribunal sees fit. right. So essentially she hasn't she hasn't decided he will be executed, but she has said he will be given a trial. Um, Proteus Spade says, Am I crazy or does anyone get much milder Efrafa vibes from Life in 13? I have never seen that word before in my life, Proteus Spade. What is this reference to? What do we know about here? What do we got to know about? Efrafa. Doesn't sound familiar in the least. Um... Uh, Pretty Spade says, I'm getting a lot of giggles out of the resemblance between District 13 and some of the vault Tech vaults. Uh, Regimented military lifestyles, unlikable overseer, uh, plus, of course, being underground. Yeah, certainly. Um, For any of you not familiar with the Fallout games, uh, it is a sort of post-apocalyptic survival. Uh, It's like Skyrim, if Skyrim were a little bit more sci-fi, nuclear punk kind of thing. Watership Down. Gotcha. I gotcha. (laughs) Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, I think uh I think Coin is dis- is designed to be a polarizing character. Um or at the very least uh, I shouldn't say polarizing, I should say complicated. I think the character of Coin we should understand that that there are people who are not likeable even if they are good leaders and there are people who aren't good leaders even if they may seem like it. So, um we will we will have to wait and see. Right now with what Katniss has to work with, assuming she has relayed all of her information to us the audience with what she's got right now i would say yeah president coin not particularly likable but she's not in the job to be likable that's where i'm at currently that is a and that is a matter of opinion (laughs) all right folks thank you so much for joining me today i adore you Thanks for being here. Um, I hope you have a fantastic week. We're going to raid on over somewhere later on. But first, just real quick, got to check out on these bad beans. And I might actually get the Bean Queen in here because I believe she's home. I don't think she's busy doing anything right now, but it is crazy hot. So let me turn this on. There we go. I found out that I can bounce it off the closet mirror, which is just thrilling. <laughs> I wanna say thank you very much to the folks who have shared about the show over on Instagram and Twitter. Those are the ones that I keep an eye on right now. Thank you all a ton. Um, I am in your debt. I wanna say a few things. First of all, thank you to everyone who has shared over there, but also if you you wanna help out the show in other ways, grab some clips from these streams. Any clip where you're like, any any moment where you're like, ooh, that would make a good clip. Anything where you think like a good 30 seconds of this, uh, or, or however, if you enjoy the editing process, um, go ahead and pull clips off of these because I can use those things. I can use those things like a son of a gun. Anything where you're like, oh, I loved that. It's great for me to be able to see what moments y'all really love from these streams and uh, take those clips. Take those links and pop them over in um in Discord. We've got a whole channel dedicated to clips now. Um it's up uh near the general chat. Go ahead and and uh throw some clips my way. I really en- I really enjoy seeing what y'all enjoy. <laughs> it was Gail who thought of the meadow. Held for sound. N- They stopped it, and then it started again immediately. (laughs) Hey, gang. Here in the sidecar says, I've been waiting for this all week after the end of the last book. Super excited to read first two, but never got around to reading the third. I'm super excited. Good. Good. You and I. You and I, we're going to be discovering this one together. (laughs) Now, that was an odd little noise. Did you hear it? It sounded like someone was, like, covering it up. Like, please stop! Please stop! (laughs) I'm sure it's fine. Oh, is it getting further away? I think it might be. (laughs) I think it might be just honking and leaving. All right, what's going on out there? (laughs) Oh boy. Chat, what are you most excited about for this book? What are you most excited about? Oh, Jade. Thank you, Jade. (laughs) Thank you, Jade. Right now, the longest car alarm in the world is going off right outside my window. Hope you are well. (laughs) And
1: oh. (laughs) Oh.
0: It just had to get in one more. Did you hear that?
2: <laughs> Did you hear that?
0: Oh, man. The car is okay. There's a uh, there's a parking lot nearby uh, just across the street. And so um, that is... <laughs> I know. And it's not the only one that's had perfect comedic timing either. Y'all remember that one time we were reading... Uh, it was during book fair. <laughs> It was during book fair and uh, right when I turned my voice changer on there was a big honk outside um very good very good all right okay we're good that that's the longest i think <laughs> hold on <laughs> good lord Alright, Jade, this is for you to listen to later. I'm gonna have to figure out where to put this, though. Uh, Never mind, Jade, it's not for you to listen to later. Unless you watch this on Twitch, in which case, this is for you! ra da 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 Okay. And we're back. Still, I hate them. But of course, I hate almost everybody now, myself more than anyone. The surface beneath my feet hardens, and under the carpet of ash I feel the paving stones of the square. Around the perimeter is a shallow border of refuse where the shops stood. A heap of blackened rubble has replaced the Justice Building. I walk to the approximate site of the bakery Peter's family owned. Nothing much left with the melted lump of the oven. Peter's parents, his two older brothers, none of them made it to 13.
2: (laughs) Come on!